Hi, I am Joseph. And I am Eleni. And we are the hosts of Microbes in Us. This podcast brings together the people that work tirelessly to uncover and understand the microbial world, its secrets, its complexity, and its vibrancy. And it will show us how microbes can shape, break, and make our human world. From prehistoric times, all the way to the modern world around us. We hope you enjoy and share this podcast. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to episode 14 of our Microbes and Us series. In this episode, two of my colleagues, Joseph Shuttleworth and Corrado Nye, are interviewing Gavin Douglas, the winner of the FEMS microblog writing competition, on how microbiology will change our future. They talk about the winning flash fiction story, Mutiny, by Gavin, and also discuss a little bit about how science and how researchers and microbiologists are perceived in general in fiction. I hope you really enjoy this podcast and stay until the end to listen to the narration of the Fluffs fiction story. But in the meantime, let's get a head start into this episode with a short introduction and getting to know Gavin Douglas a little bit more. Enjoy. Thanks so much for having me on. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun to write a story. I'm a postdoc at McGill University working in microbial evolution, doing a lot of bioinformatics work. So right now, my work is mainly focused on investigating strain variation in the microbiome of honeybees and trying to investigate the evolutionary forces driving that strain variation. So a lot of work in metagenomics, that's my main background, and then trying to leverage evolutionary genetics approaches in that framework. Uh, Yeah, and then as a hobby, I've been enjoying doing some short story writing in my spare time. And so yeah, I was really excited to participate in this competition. It was a lot of fun. And I've been enjoying seeing the other short stories released so far. Normally something I do on my own. So it's fun to seeing other scientists doing this actually it's a lot of fun i think we feel the same and so just to check this wasn't the first story you've written no i've been writing uh for the last couple of years i've been writing so, some stories a lot of them with kind of like an academic tilt to them so uh with some sci-fi but mainly more so just about like research culture and like personalities you come across in research that's kind of my that's one of my main interests i guess i like to me at least it's not something i've come across a lot at least like a real honest perspective of what academics are are like and you know the like psychologically like the the contrast between how they might want to be perceived externally versus what's going on internally i just find that kind of an interesting thing to investigate we read your story we found it interesting fascinating exciting can you explain the science behind your story so it's basically on two theories i guess so one is the claw hypothesis which stands for the Charleston Lovelock, Andrea Warren hypothesis. So this is something that was popularized in 1987. It's close related to the Gaia hypothesis. And anyway, so this theory comes from a scientist called Shaw in 1983, who really highlighted the regulation of the sulfur cycle could basically result in self-regulation of Earth's temperature. And really this uh, formulation by the, the Claw group in 1987, they really pointed out how the production of these sulfuric compounds by ocean microbes, specifically algae, that's what was the main contributors that were known at the time. Uh, So producing what's known as dimethyl sulfenopropionate, DMSP, which breaks down into dimethyl sulfide. And so this compound, when uh, essentially results in a type of cloud condensation nuclei, it's called. So essentially these aerosols are produced by microbes in the ocean 
and can result in increased cloud cover, or at least it, in some circumstances it can. It's actually much more controversial than, you know, in my simple story, I didn't really go into the details. But the idea is that the increased cloud cover by the production of these aerosols can essentially increase the Earth's albedo overall, essentially decreases the amount of sunlight coming in, and so it can be a way of slowing down Earth's warming. Mm. And so this idea has been floated around for a long time. So the, in, like I alluded to in the beginning, it was mainly about how just in general, from almost a anthropomorphic perspective, how Earth could self-regulate its temperature by this process and how maybe even increased cloud coverage could actually result in increased blooming of the algae and kind of mm. produce this feedback loop. So this is a very controversial idea. It's been investigated I'm certainly not a proponent of this idea. I think it's very interesting and exciting. But um, yeah, so it's been investigated in many ways. And obviously, in the, in the zeitgeist of the moment, there's a lot of interest in how to give humans more time to adapt and to adjust society to climate change. And so it's highly relevant. And so there is discussion about how to do the sort of work that I alluded to in my uh, story about actually driving more aerosol production, perhaps, and how that might interact with uh, rising temperatures. That's controversial on its own, but there's actually even more direct uh, geoengineering that's been proposed, which mm. is not, it was abiotic. So basically similar to how after uh, certain major volcanoes, the sulfuric uh, aerosols that are released, that can result in major cooling of the earth. You can do the same thing by essentially flying airplanes and releasing the aerosols on a routine basis. And so in theory, that could be used to increase the cloud coverage and decrease the temperatures. If this ever is ever done, that's probably the kind of approach that would be used. But there is talk of wells kind of leveraging uh, microbes in the ocean for this purpose, too. I was going to just add, I think that that tension, though, you have between will this work to sort of solve or prolong the time we have before climate change becomes disastrous versus the risks of this untested hypothesis was one of the very nice features of this story. I think, Rada, you've got a small description, just a synopsis of the story for our listeners, just so they can get an overview of what it's like. I mean, I do suggest you read it if you're listening for a full, in-depth understanding of the story. So that's a synopsis we get from uh, Gavin, actually, and it is the following. A rogue researcher far out at the sea has second thoughts about her mission at the last minute. The mission involves upregulating microbially produced sulfur aerosol to help counter the greenhouse effect. And I just want to resonate with what Joe said. There was the feeling that the science behind the story was deeper than what a short story could explain. And uh, at the same time, there was also the very personal conflict or very personal uh, internal conflict that the main character had with herself, which was fascinating because in a way it was also, this was also able to, to give a layer of complexity and kind of tell the reader to, to, that there is much more than what immediately meets, meets the eye. So my question would be to Gavin, what is your approach to deal with complexity of science when writing fiction to be able to captivate an audience? So my approach, not that I'm a great expert, but with the little writing I've done so far is to make it quite simple, mainly focus on like the human emotion aspect of it, unless it's extremely pertinent to the plot to have something explained. I think it's very easy to get lost in the details. And so it's kind of like, you have, you have to think about what the goal is of a story versus a scientific report. And, uh, and also like, you don't want to write just for scientists. Like you don't want to 
um, make it so that the story is only accessible to people who are maybe like close related to in the field. So I think there's danger of like getting if because scientists are often very interested in details and get excited by it that they might want to really focus on that. But it's it's not a scientific report. It's a story that's supposed to be entertaining and you know maybe give you know give someone a taste of in this case like the emotional turmoil of dealing with the scientific problem, but not actually the details don't really matter in this case for the purpose of the story. A classic technique in sci-fi is called sensory overload, which is used to kind of add in all these different details about a futuristic society, let's say, and that can have a real effect on the reader. But the goal there really isn't to teach them about science. It's really to be a literary technique there. So I think there's that as well. But in this case, and, and certainly with my approach when I do my writing is try to keep it as simple as possible. You had the big level scientific issue, but written about in a nice, simple, dramatic way without getting too bogged down in detail, but with enough to for the audience to realize, yeah, that there was gonna be a huge impact from this. In this case, release of aerosols, hopefully from uh, algae being dispersed. Honestly, I think that is the little that I know about that. I, I've listened to some interviews of this physicist and policy analyst expert at Harvard, David Keith, who's really a, one of the world experts in this and has done a lot of, because he he's an expert in the physics and also in the policy, he's really he has a really inter interesting perspective on this. So I'd recommend listeners, if they're interested in geoengineering, to check out mm. what he said on this. He has said that actually the science for doing this kind of approach is we kind of already understand it. Like at least based on models, we could already implement it. But it's really the, the you know the unknown of like I allude to in the story. Like if one country decides to do this, it could have major repercussions somewhere else in the globe. And so legally, ethically, how do you actually deal with that? If uh, you know a, a first world, a major developed country does this, and then it affects a poorer country, let's say, I mean, especially at, you know between the hemispheres, let's say, I mean that could have obviously uh, a lot of major repercussions. It might not even be countries. I mean, in this case, it's a rogue scientist. I mean, you already have extreme protesting coming from movements like you know Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, is your story in any way forewarning what could happen, where you know more powerful, more well-resourced groups? with scientific understanding, increasing trouble with climate change could behave in this kind of way. I mean, I, absolutely. I think it's so hard to predict what's going to happen. I mean, we're getting, I know in, in Europe this summer is a major heat wave. And so we're like, it's becoming the norm. In Canada, we have these, unfortunately, these horrible forest fires every year now. So it's becoming the norm to have these environmental disasters, even in you know comfortable developed countries. And even, of course, it's going to be harder for even the less well-off countries. And so, I mean, there's going to be a lot of, uh, as people become more desperate, yeah, I mean, it's, you can, it's hard to predict right now, but it's certainly you can imagine that well-financed groups could just, just get, uh, who are upset maybe with governments and bureaucrats kind of dwaddling, just going off and doing it themselves. And that mm. could you know, totally change the climate, have major repercussions. So there's certainly, yeah, I could totally see that happening perhaps sooner than we might think. I think you mentioned that the divide between developed and you know the global south i think yeah. karada you had a, a question you wanted to ask about this topic indeed this was one part of the story which i found very fascinating yeah, that you touched about the divide between global north and global south in, in the case of your story this divide could have been made bigger by microbes by the effect of microbes do you think there are advancements in in microbiology that can actually help reduce the divide between the global north and the global south? 
In this particular context, I don't really see, I, I think it's just because it affects the whole global climate. I don't, it, I think it could make a difference in who has like the decision power, like who has the resources to do this. And just in terms of that, there's a major uh, imbalance there, but I don't see how like M2s are microbially produced aerosols that, yeah, that basically quality or could be reached uh, by through, yeah, by leveraging microbes, but um, certainly in other aspects of microbiology. So I think some of the other stories that I've seen so far kind of allude to that. So things like, I know one story is about uh, sort of improving agriculture globally. And so, uh, so I think, and also like getting away from our dependence on uh, meat production and certain, which also contributes uh, disproportionately uh, per gram of protein that's produced to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. And so, yeah, so I think there's definitely room for more sustainable development of countries that may be already developing far more in terms of their like economic growth currently. Um, you know, they might currently be leveraging a lot of greenhouse gases and maybe less sustainable practices because they're more or cheaper. But I think, yeah, leveraging microbial approaches and other technologies just to, to allow more sustainable growth. Because I think there's a major tension right now between people in the global north talking about, yeah, we want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we want to reach this target, and then people in the global south who maybe also obviously they want to have a sustainable future as well, but they also want economic growth and the luxuries that others in the world have, and so uh, yeah, and, that, and so we have to kind of include that that yes, they will be continuing to develop, they will be actually increasing their greenhouse gas emissions over time, and also yeah, things like. Uh, maybe less sustainable agricultural practices will be continuing to grow as populations increase. So yeah, I think coming up with technologies to help alleviate pressures that are caused by that increase in economic growth and population growth. Certainly, um, yeah, I, I'm certainly no expert on how microbes could be practically used there, but certainly in the in fields of agriculture and I think in greenhouse gas emissions as well, I think kind of helping those yeah. countries do that more sustainably. So microbes could help and scientists could help, definitely. And then let's dive a little bit deeper into scientists in fiction. So why do you think there are not more fictional stories where the main character is a scientist? Do you think this is because writers might not be very close to science or scientists? Or do you think it's because a writer my believe a scientist is not an interesting character. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think like the classic archetype of a scientist is someone, I guess, just like a pure rationalist. And yeah, so in, in many ways, the scientist might be a villain or a secondary character, but you're right, often it's not the protagonist. And I think you're right that it's often because they're maybe not that, it, they stereotypically might not be very interesting. They might just be not a very interesting story. It's just a pure rationalist just saying, okay, yes, yeah, so that happened. Well, I'll proceed as thus. And like this, it's not, might, might not make for great drama. The exception being maybe what comes to mind is like Isaac Asimov's books, where often it is this great rational intellectual, like this, you know, someone who often does approach the conflicts with like the perfect answer and a rational point of view, which, you know, he made it work somehow. But in, in many cases, it's, I don't think it doesn't necessarily make for the best drama. But that's not actually how scientists are. Scientists have a ton of weaknesses. We hope that as scientists, we aspire to be rational and to uh, not you know, let, let our subjectivity kind of blind us. But of course, we're humans and that happens all the time. And you know, we're very emotional beings as all humans are. So I think that reality often isn't reflected in fiction. I think I really liked the 
internal monologues you had in the development of the character. I mean, it's a short piece, so there's only so much character development, but you still get a lovely insight into her thoughts and especially, I think, her doubts and her worry and her uncertainty around what she believes she has to do, but without complete conviction that it's the best path forward, but enough that she'll perform what she needs to do in this story. So I wanted to ask you, what kind of inspired you to develop this character, Dr. Liz Bashar? And did you have any influences from real life people or did it just come out of the ether? I think uh, in general, I'm interested in having scientific protagonists kind of like the Liz character, because I think her internal monologue is pretty similar to most, probably most people, like in many cases, people have like very, like maybe they're hiring themselves and they're constantly, maybe they might have negative thoughts they're returning to, which I think a lot of scientists probably have, but they just don't talk about it. I think that's true for most fields that we like, often the goal is to, you know, externally present yourself as a very knowledgeable and, uh, you know, you, you want to reach the prestige and the, you know, the scientific hierarchy and you want to present yourself as a great thoughtful scientist. But as humans, we have a lot of self-doubt and maybe staying true to like, a certain scientific program takes a lot of self-confidence. You might not be getting great feedback from your peers all the time. So you really have to believe in yourself. And so I think a lot of scientists face a lot of self-doubt that they, you know, because of uh, kind of the system of we have to kind of do really well to get forward in our careers. There's not a lot of room to be, oh, actually, I'm not sure about this program here. Maybe it wasn't the best idea. There's not a lot of room for that. Instead, you have to say, oh, yeah, this was this paper is amazing. This this idea for an experiment I had was perfect. But obviously, that's not true. Obviously, there's self-doubt everywhere. If you talk to scientists, you'll, if you have friends, they'll, talk, they'll maybe talk to you about it. But certainly publicly in a scientific conference, for instance, it's very rare to speak that way. I think so it's I a like, shame because I yeah, mean, I, science I lives in the realm of doubt very deliberately, at least, you know, theoretically in the philosophy of science. It's about having doubts about things and trying to find out if things are wrong a lot of the time. Because it's easier to show something doesn't have validity than to prove anything. So, you know, is there some aspect of the way that modern science works that goes against its innate philosophy? I definitely believe so. I think, as has been widely discussed, I mean, just the incentive system is totally off right now. So we're selecting for, I mean, I, I, I'm part of the system. I'm not like, it's not like I'm an outsider, but it's mm. it's obviously we're all... A lot of scientists are very interested in their careers out of, you know, self-preservation because you kind of have to reach a certain level to have a, a stable career and be able to live the way you like. Uh, and so there's a lot of pressure to kind of, to not be as probably as honest as we should be about pointing out flaws in our own work. We I mean, like it's hard, it's hard to be a pure scientist and to really, you know, live a, a, a happy life basically. And so it's, it's, and also it's, we don't, re we, I think it's changing a bit. I think we're rewarding more people who are focused more on flaws and kind of often that it's, it's not an easy road to kind of do the best science, but I, I think we're starting to appreciate that more. There's a lot of great science being published all, all the time. It's not like it's, there's probably more self-doubt and more flaws that could be raised than are openly discussed. And I think it's because of, uh, yeah, it's basically people's careers are on the line so that people just mm. aren't comfortable talking about it. I guess our character Liz here, I imagine her career is on the line as a result of the sequence of actions in, in the story. So she's taken the ultimate gamble and sacrifice outside the safety of career. I mean, if you yeah, haven't read so... the story, there will be an audio readout of the story at the end of this podcast. So you can listen to it. 
but yeah, she is very much in this story stepping outside the, the safety blanket or the comfort of certainty with her own career and perhaps how people perceive her actions. And I thought that was a really interesting development in the story because it does yeah, so, leave yeah, you right. in an end point of there's a world continuing in this story, which we don't get to see and unknown ramifications, which go on beyond the end of the story. And it leaves you then trying to imagine past the end, <laughs> at least I was trying to fill in with my mind, like, well, what's going to happen next? I must know. And I really like that ending. Yeah, thanks a lot. The format of uh, the flash fiction kind of invites that kind of cliffhanger ending. I think in the instructions, it even alludes to like, you want to leave the audience asking for more. And so, yeah, I think because you only have 750 words, you uh, it's really hard to have a satisfying conclusion about just kind of alluding to some possible future fate of that might be exciting. Can you imagine any follow-up stories or prequels? Or do you want to leave it as a standalone piece? Um, I actually like this story. I think it I think it works as kind of a flash fiction story right now. So I don't think I would add to this story, but I would be interested in more of a, um, yeah, I, I think what, we, what would be really interesting if, if someone wrote a story about the uh, political turmoil, like about geoengineering. And uh, yeah, certainly I think using the kind of approach I allude, allude to in the story, I mean, like, so using microbially produced aerosols, even you could focus a sci-fi story on that. Just about, yeah, the conflicts that will arise in the near future. And yeah, just how people are likely to react. I think it's very, uh, very apt just thinking about how society will react to this kind of major intervention. Because, I mean, we've seen a lot of societal problems just from, I mean, not in jest, but from a pandemic, which is relatively much more cut and dry about what the right thing to do is. And so if we're talking about major uh, interventions into the climate, uh, obviously, there's going to be a lot of blowback and it's going to be highly controversial. And people, like you can only imagine the kind of misinformation and kind of like the divide in society that will grow from that. So I think a story focused on that would actually be really interesting. And I think, unfortunately, uh, we, we might be facing that pretty soon. Okay, one last question. Thinking about microbiology and, and fiction. Which kind of genre do you think microbiology is suited for, aside from what quite often it's it's available out there, like apocalyptic scenarios or pandemics? I mean, my instinct is generally to go to immediately think of like an apocalyptic or uh, or if often like kind of like a negative and satirical view of a microbiology lab. Maybe that's kind of the angle I would normally take. But yeah, this writing competition because the goal was to write something more optimistic and uh, positive view of how microbiology could interact with the future. That really got me thinking about how, yeah, how, yeah, obviously it's, it is usually used to form a story from a negative light. Uh, so yeah, I, it, it actually was kind of tricky for me to come up with something positive. I have to admit, I was, most of the stories I had in mind were more negative and more dramatic, more tr a tragedy almost. Certainly it would be very, I, I, I think like more of a, a comedy, maybe I, I might have a, a children's book in mind that might be more of like a satire leveraging microbiology, like satire about modern society and, and climate change, maybe. But uh, I don't. Uh, but that still would be the villains in that case actually would be microbes. And so it's not it's not it's still kind of a negative perspective. So, yeah, I think that's something I definitely struggle with. But I think I uh, certainly the other short stories I've seen, it's I've seen that positive perspective of microbiology, which has been really interesting. And, but yeah, you're right that that's not something you normally see, but 
I think it's a really fresh perspective. I think one of the themes you had in some other entries were kind of symbiosis. And it was looking at, you know, will humans and microbes fuse in a way that is more, even more combined than it is, you know, going on now with my gut microbiome and my skin flora. And I thought that was another interesting uh, kind of angle was the idea of becoming even more one with the microbes as we go into the future. And it was yeah, just I, another kind of positive trajectory because we had lots of use of microbes as like a technology. And then some of the other stories delf, delved into physically and biologically combining with microbes in a deeper way. Yeah. And I thought there were two, like an intrinsic and an extrinsic way of using microbes to transcend our problems. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I guess they're just thinking of like in terms of a story, I'm not sure what, yeah, I guess it would, it's something certainly to like, for a futuristic world where those benefits could be present, but in terms of adding like the drama or, or something, it's, it wasn't immediately clear to me uh, what the angle would be. But I think the, uh, the others, the stories I've seen so far certainly have, have shown that it can be done. And yeah, and all those, well, the top 10 winners will be published by the time this podcast comes out. So do read all of those if you have the time. And now for another interesting part of the podcast episode, we're going to hear a narration of the full flash fiction story Mutiny by Gavin Douglas. I hope you stay on to listen to this very short last part of the episode and see you soon in one of the next ones. Mutiny by Gavin Douglas Liz sat on the bow of the ship, gazing at the calm waves. There were few clouds today, and but for the ship itself, all she could see were shades of blue. It was easy to forget the crisis on days like this. She momentarily considered returning to the stern, but rejected the impulse. She needed to learn to be still on these voyages. So far, it had been a struggle. Zephyr had left port two days ago, and Liz had been unable to relax ever since. She had envisioned that this voyage would be a time for constructive contemplation, but instead her mind kept returning to the same anxious thoughts. Was this who she was? What if it went wrong? Normally, she would force herself to go out for a jog when such thoughts arose, but there was no escape on the boat. She closed her eyes and breathed deeply. One way or another, it would all be over soon. Dr. Bashar, a voice from behind startled her. She turned to see Chris, the crew's youngest member. She gave her best confident expression. What's up? She replied. Dr. Murray says this is the spot. Here? Liz's stomach churned. There was supposed to still be a day away. That's what he said. Apparently the sensors are picking up a bunch of them. The algae and bacteria. Liz looked out at the waves. Was it possible that the water was murkier here? I better go talk to him, she said and made her way back to the cabin. She tried to ignore the panicked thoughts that arose as she stepped over the lines draped along the starboard side. Down below she found Dr. Benjamin Murray hunched over his monitor. He looked up as she approached. Liz, we can do it here. But what about the target region? She asked. Trust me, this is better. The area is highly concentrated. It's the perfect place to start our run. She looked at the monitor. Ben wasn't wrong. The concentration in this area was higher than the planned spot anyway. They were far enough from shore to evade detection. There was no good reason not to start. Okay, she conceded. I'll need a while to get things prepared, though. Ben looked confused. What do you mean? Everything's ready to go. Just some last-minute checks. This is our first run, after all. We want it to go smoothly, right? 
Ben nodded reluctantly. Okay, but it'd be great to begin within the hour. Of course, said Liz. I'll get started right away. She tried to control her breathing as she made her way to the rear cabin. She managed to maintain her composure until she closed the cabin door and then collapsed against the curved wall, her eyes clenched shut. What if it worked too well? Yes, dimethyl sulfide might save humanity, but microbially produced aerosols really might reverse the greenhouse effect, block out just enough of the sun's heat to give humans the time they needed. But what if it worked too well? What if Europe was saved while Southeast Asia experienced an ice age? Liz took a few long breaths and steadied herself. She turned her attention to the numerous unmarked canisters strapped on the wall. Here it was, the compound that she had dedicated so much of her life to, the aerosol driver. It stressed ocean microbes in just the right way, causing them to enormously upregulate their dimethyl sulfide production. By releasing these canisters in the wake of the Zephyr, she and the fleet of scientists and activists on this mission would substantially increase the sulfuric aerosol levels in the Earth's atmosphere, enough that they should see a pause in the uptick in global temperature, at least according to their models. Liz closed her eyes again. Sure, maybe it wouldn't work. Maybe the sulfuric aerosols would exacerbate international tensions. Maybe it would make the climate crisis worse. But what was the alternative? She looked through the cabin porthole. The water was still deceptively calm, and it was hard to believe there were many DMSP producers nearby. But there was no doubt. The microbes were out there, and so was the reality of the crisis. Liz felt her resolve return. Yes, it might be irresponsible to start this run. But perhaps doing nothing would be worse. She unstrapped a canister and opened the cabin door.